But I'm afraid the end time is near. The cataclysmic apocalypse referred to in the scriptures of every holy book known to mankind. It will be an era fraught with boundless greed and corruption, where global monetary systems disintegrate, leaving brother to kill brother for a grain of overcooked rice. The nations of the civilized world will collapse under the oppressive weight of parasitic political conspiracies which remove all hope and optimism from their once faithful citizens. Around the globe, generations of polluters will be punished for their sins, unshielded by the ozone layer they have successfully depleted, left to bake in the searing naked rays of light. Wholesale assassinations serve to destabilize every remaining government, leaving the starving and wicked to fend for themselves. Bloodthirsty renegade cyborgs created by tax-dodging corporations wreak havoc. Pissed-off androids tired of being slaves to a godless and gutless system where the rich get richer and the poor get fucked over and out. Unleash total worldwide destruction by means of nuclear Holocaust, annihilating the terrified masses, leaving in its torturous wake nothing but vicious, cannibalistic, mutated, radiated, and horribly disfigured hordes of satanic killers bent on revenge, but against whom there are so few left alive. Starvation reigns supreme, forcing unlucky survivors to eat anything and anyone in their path. Massive earthquakes crack the planet's crust like a hollow eggshell, causing unending volcanic eruptions. The creatures of the seven seas, unable to escape to certain death upon land, boil in their liquid prison. Disease encircles the earth, plagues and viruses with no known cause or cure, laying waste to whatever draws breath, and humankind having proven itself to be nothing more than a race of ruthless scavengers, fall victim to merciless attack at the hands of interplanetary alien tribes who seek to conquer our charred remains. This is Extinction Level Event, the final world front, and there is only one year left. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and today, today I'm starting something new. I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows, and there's nothing new there, but what is new here is today I'm kicking off a brand spanking new miniseries. This is the beginning of Extinction Level Event, a miniseries where I'm going to shoot the breeze about comic book crossovers that mean something to me. You see, I think it'd be fair to say that my whole show's really a celebration of comics. But I gotta say, loyal subjects, that I've never been a big crossover guy. Generally, those huge company-wide mega storylines are a kind of sort of turnoff. At least for me. But a lot of them really do kick ass, and we're going to be talking about 
one of those today, but that, I think, is getting the cart before the horse just a little bit. First, I should probably think about introducing my guest. Right? That makes sense. A story like this one requires a bit of historical discernment. Some comic stories are just that way. You can't just read it like a story. At least, you can't if you want to appreciate the full texture and importance of it. Nope. Because this episode needed, above all, to be informed, I decided to bring in a very specific guest. Now, I wouldn't say this next part about just anybody, because it isn't true of just anybody, but this guy. I'm talking about my guest here. Well, he's somebody that I consider to be a a little bit of an inspiration, at least in some ways, at least about some things, because God knows his fixation for pyromania is to be neither encouraged nor emulated. But when you move away from the arson, today's guest is well-established among the royal elite of Superman fans and apologists to be found anywhere on the internet. And so whether you know this guest as the host of Views from the Longbox the co-host of From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, or that crazy son of a bitch who torched your car the other week, I welcome back to the show, for the first time since the last time, Mr. Michael Bailey. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? You know, I can't talk about the arson thing because I'm in litigation with uh, the Flash people over their portrayal of Heat Wave and how it kind of rips off my own criminal career, so... uh Alleged, so, alleged, criminal. Uh, alleged criminal career. But uh, but other than that, yeah. Hey, thanks for having me back on, sir. Well, it's a pleasure to have you back. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not likely to be wrong. But one never knows. I think the last time you were here, it was for our three and a half hour commentary for JFK. True or false? I believe that was the last time we got together for this show. I think after that, we did. Uh, you did that episode of Views with me where we talked about. Uh, Superman Red, Superman Blue. Right, and then the, sort of the state of the union with Superman. Yeah. Them, and that was actually a lot of fun. That was a, that was a fun little episode. I got a lo- I got a lot of feedback on that one. Positive feedback, I guess I should add, because <laughs> you never know with uh, w- with feedback how sometimes it can be fine, and then sometimes people are threatening litigation. Or in this case, uh, like to to cut somebody. I mean, I the, I still occasionally get a little bit of blowback from the Superman two stuff. So, <laughs> a lot of fun there. Well, you know, the Donner suicide bombers are a little uh, they're a little they're a little hardcore. So, I prefer to think of them as simply heartfelt and devoted. Keeps me alive. <laughs> <laughs> Well, send all hate mail to <laughs> Michael at viewsfromthelongbox.com. Yes, please do. I because I, I got to tell you, people, I really can't take very much more abusive email. So, <laughs> but um, to get into to get into t- uh, today's show, you know, kick this whole thing off, my extinction level event miniseries. I wanted to talk about. I actually had to double check this part, but. This is actually the earliest DC crossover in the in the post-crisis era, mm-hmm. and really ever if crisis itself doesn't count, which under the circumstances I'm not really sure that it that it should. So there's the historical angle here that I wanted to take into account. But 
There's another angle to this story, and we'll, God knows, have a chance to get into it later, but for right now, into the summaries we go. On the despotic world of Apocalypse, Darkseid surveying the perfect order of tyrannical hopelessness he's created, but just can't shake an uneasy feeling of foreboding. Like any good leader, and trust me people, I'm very familiar with this sort of thing. Like any good leader, Darkseid questions Desaad, his favorite minion, why it is exactly that he can't just kick back, relax, and enjoy his evil villainy, his mastery over all he surveys. Desaad suggests it might be because he still hasn't found the time to grind Earth underneath his evil heel. Darkseid suggests that it might also be because the people of Earth are inspired by their superheroes to ever give in to the same kind of despair that's common on Apocalypse. And so a plan emerges. First, Darkseid plans to use his lieutenants and his subordinates to undermine mankind's faith in superheroes. Second, once they have no hope for a happy tomorrow, the way is going to be paved for Darkseid to move in, take over, and make his own legend the only legend on Earth. To further his scheme, Darkseid sends a fire elemental called Brimstone to Earth to defeat the Detroit-based Justice League, along with Firestorm and a time-traveling Cosmic Boy. Darkseid also arranges for the cyborg villain Macroman to be killed by the mystical lightning that Captain Marvel uses to change into Billy Batson. After which, Captain Marvel's blamed by the media for Macroman's death. Meanwhile, Batman suffers his own loss when Robin, that is to say Jason Todd, gets beaten and trampled by a crazed mob. As if all that wasn't enough, Darkseid installs Glorious Godfrey as an agent provocateur posing as G. Gordon Godfrey, an author who foments fear, paranoia, and anti-superhero sentiment in every media outlet that will have him. Fearing widespread panic, President Reagan declares martial law and bans all superheroic activities in America. This angers several members of Reagan's Department of Defense who, at the behest of Amanda Waller, activate Project Task Force X. Would the Suicide Squad by any other name be so black ops? Recruiting a team of expendable, imprisoned supervillains, Amanda Waller uses the Suicide Squad to destroy Brimstone. Later, Dr. Fate's forced to intervene when Glorious Godfrey uses his army of followers to invade Washington, D.C. Dr. Fate organizes Superman, Batman, Captain Marvel, Guy Gardner, Black Canary, Changeling, The Flash, and the Blue Beetle to oppose Glorious Godfrey. They're joined by the Martian Manhunter, and also by Wonder Woman. After that, they defeat the forces of Glorious Godfrey, including Darkseid's cyborg Hounds of War. The masses are freed from Godfrey's power when Godfrey strikes one of the children. The shock of seeing something like that frees the hysterical mob from his power. Godfrey's then defeated when he steals Dr. Fate's helmet and puts it on himself, rendering him mindless. From there, a new Justice League is born, less the Flash, Changeling, Superman, and Wonder Woman. The end. So, what did I think? Actually, you know what? We'll circle back to that in just a minute. But first, I think we should 
we, we should listen to what Michael thinks of this story. So, sir, I've, I've been running my mouth here nonstop. You've got the mic. What did you think? Uh, this is one of my favorite DC crossovers ever. Hallelujah. I, uh, I, I, it's, it's kind of funny because I, I, I have like this murky story when it comes to when I started actually collecting comics on a regular basis because I would get comics for years. But it wasn't until 1987 that I actually started buying them on a regular basis with the Superman titles. But there was, um, I, I don't remember the circumstances, but I just remember we had been on a trip. Mm-hmm. And I think it was to visit one of my aunts. And on the way home, we stopped at the mall for some reason. And I went into Walden Books back when Walden Books still existed. Mm-hmm. No, those were and the that, days. That that dates certain podcasters, I have found. When you hear them talking about Walden Books, there are people going, ah, and there are people like, what's that? So it's kind of a, it's definitely a line of demarcation in, in, in terms of fandom. But I picked up the fifth issue of this book because it had Captain Marvel on it, and I knew who Captain Marvel was. Hmm. And I remember kind of reading through it when I got home, and I was just like, wow, look at look at Batman. His costume's mostly black. And Superman looks great. And, and it's just, it was just another comic that I read because it had a superhero on it. Uh, later, this was one of the first crossovers that I bought in back issue, like all the way through. Like I bought uh, issues one to four because I had five. And then I found six at like this one day comic show at the mall. Oh, awesome. And I was just totally enamored of the story because it's a bunch of superheroes getting together and they're not really together until the very end of the story, but it, it just, it was just exciting. And I knew who dark side was and I knew who Dr. Fate was cause I had his superpowers figure and I knew who Martian Manhunter was cause I had his superpowers figure. And I remember really wanting a guy Gardner superpowers figure at that point. Uh, and you know, you just find out, you know, blue beetles, kind of a colorful character, black canary didn't make much of an impression, but that's cause she's in her jazzercise outfit. So yes, I, I would think that if she was in fishnets that, uh, that I would have more of a concrete memory of it, but just about everything when I was a kid, just it, this, this series just hit me on all the right cylinders, especially since it had the John Byrne art mm-hmm. as an adult. When I, because uh, a couple years ago, I actually read everything in Legends. Mm-hmm. I followed the chapter numbers of the crossovers, and I tracked down the Warlord issues and, and and the other stuff. And I marveled at how, for not being as organized as Millennium was, because Millennium was a pretty. Uh, I remember Dick Giordano, uh, the executive editor of DC at the time, writing about the fact that he uh, that. When Millennium was coming out, it was the most the editors had worked together. Wow. And to be fair, my first crossover with DC was Invasion, so I'll always have a soft spot for that. But this one, it just, for me, I think the themes that it discusses Mm -hmm. about what is a hero and how at a time (laughs) in the New 52, the public not liking superheroes is like Tuesday. Mm-hmm. But in 1986, this was a huge deal in the DC universe. It wasn't the Marvel universe where the public could turn against heroes in a heartbeat. And that's just how that engine ran. You know, it's not a not a value judgment on it. 
that's just how Marvel comics worked. People didn't like Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. People hated and feared the mutants for whatever reason you want to insert into, you know, identify with those characters. But for someone to be torching an effigy of Superman, again, these days, that's not a big deal. Back then, it was huge. Yes. And I liked seeing how they were kind of stretching their legs in the post-crisis universe. You know, they were they were playing with Wally as the Flash. And, you know, he had been in Teen, New Teen Titans, but this was one of the first, like, big, you know, like, huge things that he was in. And, you know, having Garfield in there uh, as his kind of tight sidekick kind of worked out. And we were introduced to Captain Marvel in the DC Universe in this one. Uh, this is still the nebulous Jason Todd. Yes. Uh, this is very much the pre-crisis Jason Todd in every sense, especially since he calls him Jay yeah. uh, instead of Jason. But more than that, it was just, it's Darkseid trying to control humanity through the media. And that on that level, this story is completely ahead of its time. To have, if this story was done today, and do not think this is me bashing a particular cable network, because I'll mention all of them, but G. Gordon Godfrey would be on Fox, he'd be on CNN, he'd be, well, he wouldn't be on MSNBC, who watches that, but, <laughs> you know, he'd be on morning talk shows, and in in the, since the, the, the 24-hour cable news cycle didn't really exist, I mean, CNN was there. But you watch CNN because they got to disasters faster than anybody else. You didn't just watch CNN, you know, yeah. whereas today you just watch these channels. Right. So I think them use, you know, dark side using the media and a person whose superpower is to control people. But at the same time, I don't think he really had to use the power to make some people kind of turn against the heroes. Because there's always going to be people that are like, uh, you know, I don't trust them anyways. But again, that wasn't a big, huge DC Universe thing. So it, so to have that happen and then to involve President Reagan yeah. into the story. And, you know, everyone wants to say, oh, Superman was Reagan's lapdog. Yeah, in Dark Knight Returns, he was Reagan's lapdog. Through this story, he does not want to do what the president is telling him to do. Right. And there were several stories in the early post-crisis era where he was just not happy to be dealing with Reagan at all. Not that he didn't like the man's politics. It's just he was being asked to do something that he really didn't feel was right. But here's the thing also. I don't think Reagan is cast in a bad light in this story. I think he's doing what he thinks is right for the people of the United States. And it's not a Republican or Democratic issue. It's a... There's riots and discord in my country. I have got to issue this outlaw against superheroes because I think it's the best thing to do. And I'm sorry, Superman, that includes you. So you're going to you're going to have to step down. He never looks at Superman and goes, OK, I need you to go round these people up. Right. Which and is what that, Mark if Frank done. Miller had been writing the story that I think would have been what Reagan said. You know, mm-hmm. I need you to not stop doing this. It's more go arrest these people, you know, and mm-hmm. th- that is something that, that gets lost. I agree with you. So but more than anything, it's just a really fun action story. 
you know, there's there's deeper themes involved, and I'm sure we'll get into get into that more later. Mm-hmm. But you had some really epic fight scenes with Blue Beetle where he's swinging around. You have Superman looking like well, the John Byrne Superman, so it's awesome. Yes. You had Batman swinging around, and that those that final issue where that team comes together, it makes me sad that that wasn't the Justice League that came out of uh, this story because. That's my superpowers collection, essentially. <laughs> Pretty much. And that was going to be something actually – we're getting a little ahead in my notes, but that's fine. Okay. I, one of the things I was going to ask is how much do you think that specific lineup was influenced by the superpowers line? Oh, they had, it had to be something in there because Dr. Fate was – I got Dr. Fate and Martian Manhunter in 1986 uh, for Easter, as a matter of fact. They were in my uh, my Easter basket. And – that's when I was introduced to those characters. So it, it, it it's not surprising that when you have a big crossover like this, when you're trying to reach a, a bigger audience, characters that have toys out there are the ones you go to. I don't think it was the sole reason, but I'm sure there were discussions about, you know, which characters do we use in the story? Uh, who works best? Because Dr. Fate is there because he serves a very specific purpose. Uh, and he looks really good. But, you know, and Martian Manhunter is there because he's part of the Justice League and that dissolves during this story. Right. Uh, the the Detroit League is finally put out to pasture. In some cases, some of them are outright killed in the crossovers. So uh, and you have Wonder Woman and Flash. So, you know, they chose Guy Gardner, who didn't have a figure. But, you know, people are familiar with who Green Lantern is. And Guy is just a good <sighs> His personality was good to throw into this mix. I agree. Because he didn't care. He didn't give a crap that there was some kind of uh, presidential edict telling him he can't do what... Because I think, according to Guy, he's a Green Lantern. He's above all that. So he's he's going to be a hero and fight Jim Shooter. Um, and whether, whether anybody wants to tell him to do so or not. Agreed. Um, and that actually kind of leads into something. This is... Number one, I, I find that the way that a lot of the uh, characters, how they complied or, for that matter, didn't comply with the president's order to stand down, I found every single one of them to be very true to those characters and who they are. In the case of Guy, he views it that his superior officer is a lot higher up the totem pole than even the president of the United States, so fuck you. Um <laughs> But the other thing was, John Byrne lamented on more than one occasion, I think, that basically the deal that he agreed to in order to come on board and, and uh, do Superman, it was that he would have a chance to sort of build this character from the ground up. And mm-hmm. it's not necessarily going to be a, a thing where Superman has to be sort of brought up to the current day right away. He'd have a chance to sort of grow into that. And that ended up never really happening uh, DC for whatever reason kind of changed their minds on it uh, you know once all the documents and everything had been signed they said actually some things just sounded better on paper you know they just sounded better in the meetings we need a Superman who's basically settled in so to speak with the first issue of the ongoing series and so that's what you're going to be doing which is not exactly what he wanted to be doing. And so for a long time, I kind of thought that, you know what, that would have been friggin' awesome if there could have been an ongoing series of some kind 
that had told those stories. And then I realized you could not have done this as well. Uh, this this exact story couldn't really have been done as powerfully if all these characters were basically in year one. Mm-hmm. They needed to be established in order to get the message across. And so, uh, anyway, I guess, like, what do you, do you do? You agree with that? Do you not agree? I mean, no, I, I'll totally agree with that because if you have it in year one that the public mistrusts superheroes. That's a valid story to tell, but I think it has more power to it if you have a DC universe where these people are entrenched in the norm. Mm-hmm. You know, people trust the Justice League. People trust Superman. People trust Batman because this was before he was the urban legend. You know, you know there was some comments about the Flash, but you know, the Flash died heroically and here's Wally, so we're just going to accept that, you know, he's fighting Deadshot, he's a bad guy. So it has more weight if you use it in a universe where, you know, this kind of thing is the normal thing of having superheroes and all that. And now we're questioning that at a, at a later date. Uh, I, I don't think it works well on a year one level because, you know, Batman year one, as was established in Batman year one, around the time that this series was coming out, you know, a lot of people didn't even believe Batman existed Mm-hmm. So, you know, it doesn't matter if people would be like, well, we're going to outlaw superheroes because, you know, one, that Batman's not going to care, uh, cares even less than the Batman in this story, as a matter of fact. Right. Um, but it, it's just, it, it doesn't work as well. I don't think so. Um, and, and it's kind of funny that, you know, I say that when I, when I say that this doesn't work as well as it would in year one, what I mean is this story, the way that it's done, because that leads into a little something, something I've. I swear to God, it feels like I'm the only person in the world who noticed this. I, as probably everyone listening to this show knows, I am a huge, huge Smallville fan. I think that Smallville is one of the best non-comics depictions of Superman ever. It's my personal favorite, in fact. And so, at the same time, I've also always had a sort of affection for this storyline, and so... Imagine how happy I was when <laughs> yes. season 10 of Smallville got underway. And it's not, it is not an A to B to C adaptation of Legends. Let's just be very clear on that. But at the same time, you can't really overlook how similar the basic pitch is where you have Darkseid sending in his agents to turn the public against the superheroes. And eventually they the superheroes get band the suicide squad shows up and they do their thing and all of this has to be turned back by superheroes and i gotta tell you once this the i guess the franchise of season 10 started getting underway the the season-wide storyline what i realized was that i can pretty much tell you how smallville as a tv show is going to end and i kind of i i don't know i what i felt what it felt like to me was the comics fans who have actually read this storyline pretty much called the way that uh, mm-hmm. the Smallville finale was going to play out. Whereas the ones that have read two or three trades and seen Superman the movie a shitload of times had no fucking idea where the story was going. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I remember. You see, I, I, I didn't watch season 10 as, as it happened. I, I saw the finale 
uh, and was kind of familiar with what was going on. But when I actually sat down, when Rachel and I sat down and watched the entire season, I was just like, wow, this is like live action legends. And on that level, I got really excited. You know, I, I, you know, I like how they did G Gordon Godfrey and I like how they did, uh, got him grainy goodness. And, all of the fourth world's characters, you know, my problems with dark side, you know, unfortunately kind of line up with a lot of, but you know, it was still dark side came to earth and Superman faced off against him. Mm -hmm. And he was the catalyst to make him put on the costume. I mean, how, I, I, like you said, if you had red legends, you knew where this was going to go. You knew that it was going to be in the end, uh, Superman kind of saving the day that was going to set everything into into the proper motion, so to speak. Right, and I don't want to stray too much into my own Smallville commentary, but the thing about it that ma- that added up to me was that this is the darkest force and just the most evil thing that the world has ever faced. Mm-hmm. And so, well, we know that obviously Darkseid's not going to win because this is fiction. The good guys always win. And this is also the last season of Smallville, so it's got to end with Clark becoming Superman. So what does it take that Superman – I mean, what does it say, I should say, that – you know, what does it say that Superman's uh, idealism, his virtue, his purity, his heroism is brighter even than Darkseid's – is brighter than Darkseid's – I don't know, whatever, fuck it, I'm, I'm – Really tired here, people, so I'm actually still sort of waking up here. Basically, though, this is the one thing that can turn back a force as malevolent, dark, and evil as Darkseid is, is that specific mm-hmm. iteration of Superman. And I thought that was, you know, that was really powerful. You know, everything that that version of Clark had ever been up against in terms of world beaters and potential Armageddons and all these other things, this is the moment where he said, everything that I am, everything that I've ever been, everything I've ever done – up to this point, is no longer good enough. I've got to transcend. I've got to grow, morph, and change. Become something more than I am. And that's the only way to turn back something this evil. And when you think about, like, I guess, like, the morality of that and, like, the heroism of that, you know, you can love or hate Clark's journey all through Smallville, but the way and the reasons that he arrives at his at his end goal, I put that a- ahead of everything in terms of Superman outside of comics, um, as far as just showing what a just badass Superman is. And anyway, the way that we're getting off subject. So <laughs> maybe uh, maybe get back into it, though. Uh, you, your thoughts? Uh, no, I'll, I'll, uh, on Smallville? Oh, yeah, I, I, I will. See, my mind totally changed on Smallville. So uh, I, I, think I've, I think I talked about this with Big Honk and Steve over on Views where I was really one of those people for the longest time that was just like, you know, this isn't, this isn't what I want. You know, when's he going to put on the costume? But when I, I think when they got out of high school and they got past, it was really when, when Miller and go left the show that I, I started liking it more Hmm. and started appreciating where they were going and just realizing in the end, the reason why he's not putting on the costume is that this is a successful TV show on a smaller network. This is their cash cow. They're going to keep milking it. So I can complain on a story level all day long that it's taking too long. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm realistic about the fact that 
at the end of seasons eight, eight and nine, you could have ended the show there. You could have had those moments be what brings Superman out, whether it's Doomsday tearing up one street in Metropolis, or I'm sorry, that was snarky, uh, or or fighting Zod. Mm-hmm. You know, those could have been the moments. But it happened the way it happened, and I think because of that, we got some really strong stories. Season 10 is one of my favorite seasons. That is where everything came together for me. Where Tess Mercer came together for me, where Hamilton came together for me. Uh, you know, And I didn't even mind that Lex wasn't a huge part of it outside of his ugly clone. Mm. Uh, no, I just... I, 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 I'm... I am not the fan you are, but I appreciate that show for what it did to Super for not to Superman because that sounds bad mm-hmm. <laughs> for Superman. I guess I should say I'm sorry. Well, fair enough. No, I, I I completely understand. The thing, you know, one of the things that worked about the the tenth season for me was that, and 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 it, and it relates directly to Legends. I promise. Is in the tenth season of the show. You had Darkseid. He was not a front and center villain. He was, you know, working in conspiracies. He was behind the scenes. He was manipulating some people, blackmailing other people, possessing other people in some cases. And he wasn't, he wasn't right there up in your face. And honestly, as it goes, as it relates to both the tenth season of Smallville and Legends, that is how Darkseid needs to be portrayed because. Darkseid's not a front and center villain. He's not a mm-hmm. brawler who gets into fist fights because he views it as basically mixing it with his lessers. And he that is so fucking offensive to him. He would never, ever do that unless he had unless he truly had no other choice. Now, I'm not saying, you know, just don't get me wrong, I'm not saying he's not tough. I, he can definitely take care of himself in a fight. But that's not the point. The point is that he's got people on the payroll, so to speak, who, who, who do stuff like that. It's beneath his vanity to trade punches with the common rabble. I mean, I don't do that. I have, I have my vassals take care of stuff like that for me. And, and as it goes for dark side, that's why he's got the female uh, furies, the parademons and people like that hanging around. They can fight the battles while he lords over everything. And I really cherished that about this story. You know, that John Ostrander and Lynn Ween get that. Darkseid's mm-hmm. plan here is all about um, staging staging shit from behind the scenes and using agents and in, uh, intermediaries. He's devising conspiracies. He's dealing in blackmail. He's working from the shadows. You know all that bullshit. And I gotta admit, it's a good plan. You know, I think in the DC universe, mankind's real defense against apocalypse is superheroes. So mm-hmm. if superheroes were to somehow be vilified through some kind of astroturf smear campaign, the way would be wide open for Darkseid to move in and take over. And that's exactly what he decides he wants to do here. And I just found that so easy to believe. It. I'm not saying that this whole story is perfect because I've actually got a little bit here on you know, some sort of foibles and imperfections. But you know, just fundamentally – this story gets so much more right than it does wrong. And I'm not just saying all of that because John Byrne drew it, although there's that. But it just it felt to me like the heartbeat of every character is right there on the page, you know? Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the one time we really see Darkseid mixing it up with somebody 
is in the Superman chapters. Mm-hmm. And on that level, you know, if, if anybody in this story is going to take on Darkseid directly, it's going to be Superman. But that's not a fight Darkseid planned for. You know, he brought Superman to Apocalypse in the in the crossover. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they had the whole thing where he pretended not to know who Clark Kent was, blah, blah, blah. But I don't re- I think his 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 end game there was, well, I'm just going to turn Superman to my side and then humanity is screwed because I'm going to send him there to go wreck things. And their fight is great. You know, you hear 80s rock anthems in the background of that fight. Yes, uh, you do. At least I do. I but in the, the end, tiger. It's the... Yeah. <laughs> but in the end, he sends him away. It wasn't a final confrontation to the two of them. He's just like, okay, this plan didn't work. Okay, you back to Earth. I'm uh, I'm gonna dust myself off and, and get there. But I, and I think that's why it, it's kind of funny because uh, I got I got pegged for kind of picking on Phantom Str- the Phantom Stranger at one point. Mm-hmm. But really, my perception of this Phantom Stranger as the enigmatic guy that just stands around and says stuff really comes from this story. Right. Because while he is a good foil verbally for for Dark Side, he really doesn't do a whole lot in terms of the there as a plot device to have somebody for Darkseid to talk to because none of Darkseid's vassals are going to conflict with his viewpoint. They're just going to go, okay, Mr. Darkseid, sir, I'm going to go do that because to them it's... Rob Kelly once described the fourth world that you could pitch it as a TV series as saying it's Game of Thrones in space. Yeah. And he's right. It's... It is it is such a bunch of petty personalities all vying for this man's approval, but any one of them want to take him out so that they could be in charge. So with that, you know, and Darkseid always viewed Earth as not something to conquer. It's just, well, that's where the anti-life equation is. So I got to take this. I got to take this shit over so I can get what I need. You know, so yeah, I, I I never really thought about it before, but he's not dirtying his hands in the story, with that one exception at all. He's doing it all through intermediaries, because it is so that is that is such a great take on the character. Well, uh, it's just that's just the way I've always viewed him. There's, but internally, there's a lot of story logic in uh, on all this. Like the first major character to fall is Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. And if, if you if you look at it just from a mechanical standpoint, it's basically uh, that moment that Captain Marvel shouts Shazam so he can uh, switch over to his uh, Billy Batson identity, which is when – what's his name? Uh, now, of course, I'm blanking on the guy's – Macro Man, I think. Yes, uh, macro, basically yeah. a, a dies, and it's it's all Billy from that, from that point on, completely human, limited – Billy, and he internalizes this guilt over all of the issues, and it doesn't even lift until sort of, I would say almost uh, against his will in the sixth issue, whenever he switches back to his Captain Marvel identity. It's like the second he does that, he realizes, holy shit, I got rooked. Uh, I'm not responsible for Macroman's death. That was somebody else. And it's because he's now got the wisdom of Solomon as Captain Marvel that he didn't have as Billy, so he really spent... Those, those, uh, those, basically the entire story moping 
when it wasn't really necessary, but Billy doesn't have the same mental faculties that Captain Marvel does. And I, and I guess what I'm saying is it just it perfectly added up. You know, uh, I would say that almost all of this, really the only thing that, to kind of go backwards in our conversation a bit, the only thing, or not the only thing, but one of the only things that kind of bothered me about this story, and, and this is true of a lot of uh, stories, is the fact that it's the real-life president in the story. Now, I I think that you could have had a fictional president in Funeral for a Friend and Reign of the Superman. It didn't need necessarily to be specifically Bill Clinton. It could have been a fictional president. And I really think that's the way to go in most cases. But here in Legends, I'm I'm, I, I try not to get partisan in, in, in my shows, but if somebody wanted to be partisan about this, I can see where they've kind of got a leg to stand on in that their guy, Reagan, assuming they're a, a, a Republican, and at this point, in, when, this, when this story came out, I think it would be safe to say a plurality of America would probably supported Reagan. Mm-hmm. Their guy is... I don't know. I'm not sure how best to. He's not. He's not shown to be feeble or ineffectual or anything like that. It's just that I always thought that things like that could be a, enough of a hot potato to justify a completely fictional president. You know, I mean, you could have had Ronald Carter or Jimmy Reagan or, or whoever. You know, and uh, President Bob Smith. It could have been anybody. But I, I've just never really been fond of comics using real life politicians. Precisely because it becomes now, uh, oh, so you know, a Democrat is in this comic book. So that you're saying that all Democrats are, are assholes now? Is that it? Or same thing for Republicans, or, or just or whatever you know, whatever reactionary reaction that people want to have. You know, I, I don't know. It just I've never been nuts about that. No, I'll I'll agree with that. And DC really was never the company to have the real president. Right. Uh, be represented. I mean, Reagan was was in Marvel. Carter was in Marvel a lot. <laughs> There's an issue of the Hulk where you see some military official or whatever talking to Jimmy Carter or Sal Buscema's renderings of Jimmy Carter, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was because Marvel was the, you know, the. The, the universe outside your door, you know, that just happens to have a bunch of superheroes in it. Right. And so when DC did this, this is really outside of Superman hanging out with JFK. Because mm-hmm. uh, they never had, you know, President Johnson's mission for Superman or President Nixon's missions for Superman. No. I would have liked to have seen General uh, President Ford's. Uh, but that's just, uh, I, I guess that's maybe just more for a Saturday Night Live skit or something. But what, the temp? Yeah, yeah, the, the temp, temp president. Yeah, the Come temp on. president. <laughs> but to have him here, and you know, Frank Miller opened that door, uh, and Reagan. I wouldn't say Reagan is assassinated character-wise in Dark Knight Returns, but it didn't do him any favors. No. So seeing him here, even more so than his brief appearance in Adventures of Superman Annual Number 1, seeing him here, I got the sense that, you know, I don't know the politics of Len Wein or John Ostrander. I can make some guesses. Mm -hmm. But given how some people really disliked Reagan in the 80s, this could have been a chance for them to take a poke at the president. Mm Mm-hmm. 
But I think overall he is treated rather respectfully, which is why it drives me nuts that people reference this story in terms of that and get it completely wrong time after time, whether it's Reagan's actions or Superman being Reagan. That Superman being Reagan's lapdog thing is one of my hot button issues. I just I'm just putting it out there full stop that uh, that I will fight you on that every single time, because if you think that you don't know what the hell you're talking about, essentially. Well, yeah, uh, but it's not even true. I mean, because if you think that's about the it, point. Yeah. you know, like in, in The Dark Knight Returns, Superman was basically making a sort. He was basically sacrificing himself in a more sort of meta, symbolic or metaphorical sense. He was basically taking one for the team, so that the government didn't come after everybody. It's like this is the compromise I'm, that I'm going to make to save mm-hmm. my 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 people. You know, and he, you know, it doesn't make Reagan look all that great. I'll admit, but I think it actually kind of elevates Superman in a way that he's willing to forgive me, be somebody's bitch. So that no one goes uh, goes out and shoots Oliver Queen. I, you know what? That seems like a Superman kind of thing to do. It's a compromise that he wouldn't like it, but he'd make it. Yeah, I... Uh, I no, that's just going to lead us down to a thing of, of people either not reading the material or completely misrepresenting the material for their own... Um, own ends, be it political or fan service or whatever, trying to make Batman look better because God knows you and I are kind of eye to eye on that, uh, (laughs) on that score. But no, just, just in this particular story, I mean, I got a kick out of John Jones disguising himself as, as Reagan. Yes. And and seeing Reagan kick a little ass was kind of (laughs) fun. Yes. Yes, it was. And that's the other thing. I, I, I just didn't see, you know, not to, again, go back into a subject you you're, you clearly want to get away from. But again, I just don't see, you know, it shows Reagan, you know, when the time is, when his time comes, he not only does the right thing, he beats some ass in the process. <laughs> the American president beats some ass, you know. I shouldn't have to say anything more than that. He's got some abs, too. I mean, seriously. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> But at the end of the day, Reagan lifts the order. Which which is another thing that I think people forget about this story, that even before the nascent Justice League wins, mm-hmm. Reagan's like, you know what? I was wrong. We need these people. Let's go. You know, I'm, I'm rescinding the order. Uh, you know, it turns out to be kind of a moot point because they defeat, you know, G. Gordon Godfrey and the, and the story's over. But still, yeah. that... That's one, but you know, to reference that would mean to one, you actually had to read the story. Two, you had to read the story correctly, and three, you would have to le- you would have to put that in there and disagree with your own statements. So, you know, we can't have that on the internet. No, no, we can't. But the uh, you know there is, and that actually sort of leads into really one of the few like weaknesses that I think this story has is that it just kind of ends. You know, I mean, the, the, you know, the shit's going full stop. The heroes are fighting parademons and everything. And then some kids show up, blah, 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 at the end. And it's like, the fuck happened here? You know, I mean, it's like you, you go from basically mankind facing the most dangerous threat that it's ever faced. And literally, like, a page later, it's done, it's over, we're good, you know? And what? I, I, I think... Some of that might be because originally it was supposed to be an eight-issue miniseries. Oh, 
and then they shortened it to a six issue miniseries. So that might have been editorially driven rather than story driven. But no, you're you're right. It does. You know, we get the the children are our future. Treat them well and let them lead the way moment. And uh, you know, with Robin hobbling up on his um, on his thing, and and I love the fact that it's not he's a jackass that turns people against Gordon Godfrey. It's he hit a kid. Yeah. <laughs> like gave hey, a little bit a of kid. the old pimp salad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he hit a kid. I'm not gonna listen to this guy anymore. And you know what? That is so realistic. It is, and that. But you know, here's the thing. I mean. It's like getting a seeing a kid get smacked upside the head. That's what breaks Godfrey's control. I mean, like really, watching Superman and Guy Gardner beat the piss out of Parademons that didn't change anybody's mind apparently. <laughs> but by golly, just let Godfrey smack one kid and this whole conspiracy is over. I, I it's like on the one hand I find that extremely easy to believe, and on the other hand. It's like, you know, I don't think Godfrey really needed his power to control anybody. They really are just a, that fucking easily led, you know, if you put stuff on TV often enough. I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, I feel like, you know, ultimately the, you know, people can say what they want about superheroes sort of as, a, as an ideal or abstract concept. Or they can say whatever they want about, you know, Ronald Reagan specifically. I think the, I think the group that really gets skewered here in this story is the American fucking public. You know, they're the ones that are really getting getting hoisted over the coals. And it's it's just that's the one it, it just kind of look, the fact that you say that it this was originally intended to go on for two more issues, that really does make me feel better. But I don't know. I mean, end of the day, dude, it's like, wow, that's all it took. You know, was just one kid getting <laughs> popped up uh, upside the head. And now now we're you know, this is our Independence Day. We're fighting back, blah, blah, blah. You know, wow. OK. That's cool. So well, to be fair, endings of these big crossovers are usually difficult mm-hmm. uh, because typically the best parts are the setup and the middle chapter, and in, and it's the same way in like you know like action films really where you got like all the cool stuff you know at the beginning you know having a a, a truly spectacular ending. I mean, this was. You know, originally they were going to do kind of a sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, that was alternately called Crisis on Captive Earth and Crisis of the Soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then they decided to just get away from the Crisis name altogether. So, and that had a that had like three endings. So, you know, you could you can go with you know issue ten and then issue twelve as being two different endings to that story. Uh, so here, you know, you, you had to follow that up, and that's 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 hard because, you know, getting every satisfying everybody one is difficult just in general. But I will agree with you that one of the weaknesses of the story, and one of the few weaknesses, because I think really in rereading this, this thing holds up incredibly well. Mm-hmm. I mean, on a character level, it holds up because I like seeing Captain Marvel and Billy going through his, you know, you know, crisis of the soul, you know, to use the the previous title and to see, you know, even the small moments like, you know, Black Canary is allowed to go and the two cops are fighting and the dude shoots his partner. Yeah. And then immediately has to be like, no, no, it was her fault. It was her fault. She's the one that made me do it. And it's just, you know, those things and seeing Blue Beetle being kind of the Spider-Man of the DC universe, but not really. Yeah. And, 
And and you knew that that the the sunspot character that Guy Gardner was fighting was Jim Shooter, right? I was actually going to ask about that uh, because one of the, I didn't do a whole lot of research. Sometimes it's it, I find it's best just to skip research and just talk about a story the way that you reacted to it. But I felt like something was being was being uh, symbolized there, and I was going to ask you about it. So okay, keep in mind that Byrne had a problem with Jim Shooter. Uh, and which is one of the reasons why he left Marvel to go to DC, even though he was a Marvel company man for the longest time there. Oh, yes, he was. So you have a guy that looks like Jim Shooter with the hair and everything, and he has the power in his hand to create a new universe. <laughs> that was what made me wonder the whole new new universe. Yeah, it, this was this was a little this was not I would even call it a, a, a kind hearted poke. This is a serious like like, you know, uh, yeah, this was this was burned probably. And maybe maybe Len Wein and John Ostrander didn't have the, the big thing or maybe Byrne put it in the notes. I don't know. But it, it's just it's just too close to the Easter Bunny. Uh, if you catch my drift, mm-hmm. to quote the Batman BBC production, what the hell did that come from? But uh, but no, it was just because of the the the, the moments that lead up to the final issue. I kind of give it a pass, but if you're going to look at it critically, it's just like, hey, we're all here, we're going to fight, and done. Yeah, and scene. And you know the thing is, apart from the fact that I just think this is. Uh, good story it's a lot of fun to watch or read i should say it's a lot of fun to read the thing about it that and and i i still i I will admit i i need to and you are right i hadn't actually really noticed but the whole uh sunspot thing you're right he actually even kind of looks like jim shooter but um i've never actually read this thing from beginning to end with all of the different chapters and tie-ins and and whatnot i basically have just read the superman related tie-ins and then the other tie-ins you know, individually, but never all of it as one, sort of as one piece. But I, I guess for it being so early in, uh, in DC's, or the post-crisis DC's history, it's amazing how much is done, you know, really, really well. Mm-hmm. Because this had to be a new thing for them. I mean, when you really look back on it, how much could Crisis on Infinite Earths have really prepared DC for telling this type of story, considering there's a chance they may very well have thought they'd never actually do something like this ever again. I think it came together just amazingly well. Yeah, there were some hiccups along the way. The first two chapters and 401 and Detective, I think it's 568. Uh, G. Gordon Godfrey is in both of those stories, and he doesn't look the same in either of those stories, nor do those two G Gordon Godfrey's look like this G Gordon Godfrey. Yes. Um, so, you know, it wasn't as tight of a crossover, but in terms of involving the particular stories, you didn't have to read them because they catch you up on what happens. You know, this does stand alone rather well. But when I did read everything, you know, the Firestorm issues in particular are really good because that is at the beginning of John Ostrander writing Firestorm. And it makes sense that he would be able to tie it so strongly into the stories because he's, he's writing, he's scripting this story as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the Cosmic Boy thing is more of, we're going to, you know, it's more actually a setup for 
that four part story that crossed over between Legion and the Superman books mm-hmm. than anything else. But it was still a really solid story. The Justice League books are harrowing. I mean, Professor Ivo goes through and kills a bunch of people. And that's how that Justice League ends. It's not Aquaman disbanding them. It's just they were picked off. And and even in other books, Infinity Incorporated references Legends. It doesn't tie over into it because they were in Canada. Mm-hmm. But there are references like, shit's going down at, at home. You know, I'm glad we're here. And so I kind of appreciate that because it's got to be maddening for creators who are coming onto a title and they're, you know their main focus is probably to tell the story they want to tell. But at the same time, you're dealing with corporate heroes, essentially, right? You know, (laughs) Superman does not exist in a vacuum. You cannot just hop on Superman and tell your story. If the entire universe is going to tie into it, unless it's the new 52, but that's entirely beside the point, right? You know, so to have the Superman books crossover when they did worked because it was like three issues and done, but it still feeds into this story and you, you still, you have more John Byrne artwork. So, you know, that's cool. And you got Superman, Superman basically, even though he's hypnotized, getting it on with amazing grace. I mean, that, that's what always struck me as a kid when I read that is like, did Superman just have sex with her? (laughs) Well, if you want him to have had sex with her, then yes, that's what they did. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's, it's never said like big Varda and Superman. And the porno, it's it's never said, but we can read on. between the lines. You know, <laughs> come on. But still, no. If if you ever get the wild hair to read it, I I would say it's it's worth it. It's not millennium where I felt that in many cases the crossovers were stronger than the main series, uh, or invasion. It's more like invasion where I think. You have the main series. You can read the main series. But if you want to read some really cool side stories, you know, really worth it. No. Yeah. No, I, uh, I I agree with all of that. Now, one of the things that we've talked a bit about in all of this is uh, John Byrne mm-hmm. and his art. And I, I really want to just kind of make a point of harping on this. I mean, I'm a Byrne fan. I can't really say from way back, but I am a Byrne fan, and especially this vintage of the guy's career. From my standpoint, I think that starting from about probably 1982, going until at least 1988 or 89, around there, the guy really could do no wrong. And Mm -hmm. even by that, even by that standard, and I think we've already kind of set the bar pretty high, but even by that standard, I'd say the art in these issues. This is some career best that he ever did. Yeah, it was really him stretching his legs in the DCU because he came on with Superman, but now he gets to draw a bunch of different characters. And I got to say, my love for Captain Marvel in the comics starts here. Really? Because his his visual of Captain Marvel uh, and, 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 and the writing as well, I'll, I'll give that, but that visual of Captain Marvel... I was just like, wow. See, that's the thing about Burn is that one of the reasons why I started buying the Super... The main reason I started buying the Superman books was Burn's revamp. When I picked up issue eight of Superman, Superman looked completely different than I had ever seen him in a comic. Now, I was by no means an expert at the time, but it was different than Kurt Swan. Yes. 
And it was, you know, to see him like being that huge and being that magnificent and then seeing Captain Marvel and then seeing his take on Batman, who, to be fair, looks like Superman dressed in a Batman outfit. But that's that, that's that's not the point. You know, his take on Flash, who is subtly skinnier than the rest of the characters and how beefy his Martian Manhunter is. Yes, and just Martian Manhunter's a mountain of a man. But yeah. even, you know, Burn. One of the main criticisms people have with Burn is that he has like three body types. And while he is not George Perez in terms of differentiating the characters physically, mm. there is enough differences between the male heroes in this story that you could tell them apart with their masks off. You know, and and I got to you know just. So having that artwork and having hit, you know, like you're saying at this point, Burns at his career high, you know, yes, X-Men really put him on the map. And yes, his run on Fantastic Four cemented him with fans. But I think the fact that he was able to go over to DC and take on Superman and, and take that property and bring it into the into the 80s, essentially into a contemporary audience. And I understand, and I've talked to these people that were fans of the pre-crisis and had problems with what Byrne did. I understand that, you know, cause God knows I'm going through it to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I can, I can empathize and I can sympathize at this point, but at the same time, it was what needed to happen at the time. So to have DC's first huge crossover after the crisis to kind of cement we are a new universe and to have John Byrne step in and kind of cat, you know, kick that off. I think it was the best move that they could have made for this series. Well, and I, I, I agree with that. I think honestly, there's a lot of stuff that was going on in the eighties in general that you can point back to now and say, you know what, DC from a creative standpoint and kind of understanding, you know, where the readership was at, where the market was at, they really did have their hands on the pulse. I think they were at least as relevant as Marvel and probably more so. But, you know, the um, thing about this is that, unfortunately for me, I was, let's see, just starting kindergarten when this when this story came out. And so I don't have, you know, contemporaneous stories of, you know, what it was like buying this stuff off the stands and stuff because you know, I would buy... Uh, well, I say I would buy. My parents would buy me a comic once in a while, and that would be about it. You hold on to it, you know, you keep it until it falls apart. Then you go out and you get another one, but you don't really collect, collect. And you cer- and certainly I was too young to read them, like really read them. And so when I finally came back to the story, I want to say I was probably like 12, or 12, 13, something like that. And what you were talking about was um, a while ago was this whole idea of, 24-7 cable news networks. Mm-hmm. And that was the era that I was certainly living in by, by that point. And that, I didn't even think about the fact that this was created, this storyline came out before all before the advent of those things. I just thought that this felt like a totally plausible sort of DC superhero type of storyline. And it's one of those things that's always meant um, a whole lot to me over the years. I've just always enjoyed this story. And again, it's not just because of John Byrne's art, but that doesn't hurt anything either, you know? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, this story is like, I, I look, I, when, I, when I reread it for this, I, w- I just, I was smiling the entire way through because 
Okay, to be fair, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not at a really good place with contemporary DC Comics right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't want to come off as one of those people that's mad at the company now, so I'm going to put everything that happened when I was a kid up on some pedestal uh, and, and not be objective about it. You know what I'm saying with that? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to be that guy. But at the same time, this is where I came in. This was my introduction to... Uh, you know, not this story in particular, but this era was when I started reading DC. You know, a friend of mine actually asked me the other day, what was DC's best creatively for me? What was D- what were what was DC's best era? And I was like, mid to late 80s, mid to late 90s, and right around the time of Infinite Crisis. He's just like, that's kind of random. I go, no, it's not. It's when the company, because it's to me, that is when the company was firing on all cylinders. Like, there were there are some hiccups. I mean, I could sit there and point to things that happened after the crisis where, okay, that's a hiccup, and that didn't work, and that doesn't quite fly, and whatever. But I'm talking in toto, mm-hmm. in, in, as, a, as, a, as a universe, this was when it was just like everything was, you know, not, not to sing the Lego song, but everything was awesome. And, you know, one of the big criticisms that this story has is this is where Wonder Woman is taken out of being a founding member of the Justice League. Mm. And to some people, that's a big deal. Uh, I'm not going to say I don't give a shit about that because, one, that's kind of insulting and it's not necessarily true. But at the same time, when it's all you know as a comic book fan, it really doesn't matter. It's just like, yeah, she wasn't a member. They changed things. That's how it works. And I know there were some people that were really upset about that. And again, I sympathize and empathize with them. But I think her introduction in this story, one, they earn it. And two, it's dramatic as hell. I mean, she shows up and is just beating ass. Mm. So if that's going to be your introduction to Mar- to Wonder Woman into the universe... That's much better than her just showing up in man's world, you know, in year one and being one of many heroes. No, she's the new girl on the block. And I don't, have you ever read uh, the, you know, like the early issues of the Perez run of Wonder Woman? Um, actually, no. And it's funny you should ask. That actually leads into a miniseries. I think I've got scheduled um, for... Fuck, I don't even remember. It's it, it's it's coming. Put it that way. It's definitely coming. But yeah, that's going to be part of my show at some point. Okay. it w- It's amazing. The first eight issues of that series should be Wonder Woman the movie. I, I'm not even kidding on that. Uh, I, they're never going to... It, I remember when I read those issues. You know, it, it's almost hard for me to be critical of the story. Uh, right. Just because of how much it... how. One, how awesome I think it is, and two, how much it means to me personally. Uh, and that, you know, like we said, the ending, you know, is kind of rushed. Uh, I will say that some of the scenes with regular people are a little heavy-handed. The whole Billy Batson going to that girl's house and her dad throwing the action figure into the fire. I, you know, that always felt like maybe it's because he, uh, she said doofus, and he says we don't use that type of language in our house and i'm just like that's not a swear word yeah i've always maybe it's just me i've got an overactive imagination but i've always thought that when characters say kind of stupid things like that and then somebody gets onto them we're not supposed to assume that they actually said doofus we're supposed to say we're we're supposed to assume that they said 
I don't know. Man, that guy's a real fuck widget. Or, or, <laughs> Man, what an asshole. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, but this is still a, a code approved book. So there comes a point when you have to stop taking the story literally, you know, <laughs> they can't show Superman, do, uh, you know, doing uh, Big Barda. Yeah. <laughs> they can't show kids cussing. They can't really show any kind of language at all, but they certainly can't do it from children. So, Well, on a personal level, I had neighbors at one point that I, we were we were playing with them. Uh, me and my sisters were playing with them, and I said, shut up. And she said, don't swear. And I'm like, what do you mean? I just said, shut up. She goes, mommy says that's a swear word. And I'm just like, wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow, you really are a... A sheltered, sheltered child. <laughs> so maybe I'm adding my own little personal prejudice against parents like that. But still, uh, it is funny that she calls him a pinhead. I mean, I, 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 I'm surprised that wasn't declared a swear word either, though. So well, again, we're supposed to assume that she said dickhead, and maybe there were maybe the adults were just weren't listening. <laughs> yes, but <laughs> that would be great. But no, I, I just think I, I think. This series does a really good job of exploring the themes that it set out to explore. You know, end of the day, this this was about what is a hero, what is a public's perception of a hero, and how can that be turned for a villain's game? You know, can you control a populace by controlling how they think about their saviors? And on that level, I think Ween and Ostrander succeeded admirably. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I think the, you know, the jury definitely reported in for that one. But the problem is the answer is yes. I mean, that's one of the things that ultimately I, I, I feel like the story intended to raise that question and it did, but it never really resolved it in as much as the, the resolution to this story comes from, as we said before, a child getting smacked around. And this is where I actually think that Smallville has actually got a leg up on that aspect of this story in that the Superhero Registration Act or the Vigilante Registration Act, it was basically enacted democratic – well, it was enacted by government and then it was put to referendum and then overturned democratically. The people decided that, no, this is not what we need. This is not the way to do it, certainly. And this story, it's basically you, – you could almost argue that Godfrey – and Darkseid and everyone else would have won if Dar- basically if, if Godfrey hadn't smacked the kid around, you know? And I, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm being a bit too literal with the story. I don't know. But it just it feels like that part of it was just kind of left on the table. I can agree with that. And the only against it is that you have that little conversation between Guy Gardner and Captain Marvel, mm-hmm. uh, you know, towards the end of the story where... You know, all the people are like, we're really sorry we, you know, turned against you. And Superman tells him there's nothing to forgive. And Guy fires up the ring. He's like, the hell there isn't. There's no amount of brainwashing, no matter how potent, could do what Godfrey's did unless the seed had already been planted. And Marvel steps up to say that they're kind of, you know, they're as responsible for that as Godfrey is, because he says it's our—it's part of our job to stand apart from humanity, to protect them from the threats only we can deal with. If you're looking for hero worship, well, you better look somewhere else. So, again, it was rushed because, you know, you're at the end of the story. And it's on page 22 and have to end this, so magic 
uh, you know, type of ending. But still, I'll agree with you that it it, it doesn't get resolved as well as it could have. Okay, fair or enough. Or maybe as well as the themes deserve to be resolved. Like this is a conversation that need that can happen. And, you know, that needs to happen, actually. You know, I am not, I am by no means a fan of the public mistrusting Superman. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, that's a valid story to tell. Now, if you make it your raison d'etre of the character, then I'm sorry, you need to go over to Marvel and write Spider-Man. But, you know, it would be kind of scary if an alien showed up with superpowers and a major city got damaged. That would be... I'm not naive enough to admit against that, but I think at some point you've got to accept this guy, and once you've accepted that, that makes this kind of story a little more powerful. Very good. Well, that's basically what I... You know, that was my sort of reference point on this on this story. Now, do you have anything else that you wanted to add that we haven't specifically talked about yet? Uh, I think I fell in love with Blue Beetle because of this story. Uh, and then I finally read his series and really started liking the character. You know, he is... People make fun of him as like a, uh, a Spider-Man knockoff and the fact that Steve Ditko had a hand in both, you can kind of see that. Mm. But I think... I don't think there were enough characters like him in the DC universe because he was an acrobat. He was fun. He, you know, he quipped as he fought. He was like a... He was like... Basically, if Batman and Spider-Man had a kid, it's the Blue Beetle. You know, rich industrialist with a bunch of gadgets, but he's also kind of quirky. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to say it again. Black Canary's outfit in the story. Yeah, seriously, what the fuck? Well, you know, Jeanette Kahn didn't like the fishnets anymore. So in Detective Comics, they put her in this costume, and she stayed that way for a long time. It's kind of hideous. I mean, I'm sure it has its fans... Because anytime you say something bad against any comic book character, I mean, you could, you could create like pedophile man, mm-hmm. and everyone could hate him. But there's going to be that one guy that, well, no, you know, that's how I got into comics, and you're just like, that's really nice. I would lie. I'm sorry. If that was my <laughs> gateway into comics, I'd fucking lie about it. I'm... <laughs> but no, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of silly, and I, I have to say. I think my later love of the Titans comes from this story as well, with seeing Changeling and the Flash kind of mixing it up. This is a great team. You know, this this final team that takes on the Parademons, that's a Justice League I would love to read. I said that at the beginning. I'm going to say it again now. This is a fun lineup, uh, and it just didn't work out that way for no. political reasons. Well, fair enough. Um, but, it, you know, to kind of go back to your whole, uh, you know, gateway into comics thing, there's no character you can poke fun at that uh, someone isn't going to um, take offense to. Yeah. Quasar actually used to be my go-to uh, for saying, well, you know, unless, of course, Quasar is your, your favorite comic book character, and then God help you. And then I started becoming friends with Gene Hendricks, and yet, <laughs> don't, and don't smack talk Quasar in his presence. He will shiv you, you know? So yeah, there's uh, there you go. I know it's a, Gene's a scary guy. You know, a lot of people. You know, he comes off as really. At the at the Demonzo Core meetings, mm-hmm. he, he's kind of scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He may sound like a you know nice, cool guy and everything on on the podcast. Just fucking don't cross him. That's all I can tell you. So, 
Well, uh, I think that's basically it then for what I had to say about Legends. Now, um, before we, you know, say our goodbyes and everything, um, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you, as if they don't know? <laughs> that, that no, uh, I never assume that. <laughs> the day I assume that everybody knows who I am is the day I really need to stop podcasting because I've become an asshole. Um, <laughs> views from a Longbox at viewsfromalongbox.com. Uh, there's over 200 episodes. Uh, there to listen to. Um, there is a section there. I, I, I mentioned this only because uh, it has recently come to my attention that some people may not know. Uh, there is a section on the site that has the episodes that I did before I actually had my own dedicated views from the longbox.com. Um, they, uh, they're a much angrier me, so just keep that in mind if you dip, if you dip that far back. Yeah. Uh, the uh, From Crisis to Crisis with Jeffrey Taylor, uh, I host, and we do the post-crisis Superman. We discussed Legends kind of in a more general sense. We, we really dug into the Superman issues because that's the, the, the mandate of the show. But we did kind of discuss Legends in general in one of the early episodes of that show. Uh, you can find that at either FortressOfBailey2.com or the Superman homepage. Uh, I'm also, like Trentus, a proud member of Two True Freaks, uh, where I do Comics Monthly Monday with Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. And also with Scott, I do Tales of the Justice Society of America. And currently, all through 2015, in fact, I just sent him episode four. But this is probably going to go up. You, you're stockpiling episodes like you're waiting for Armageddon. So um, the, the series could be done. But we are also looking at uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths in its own, in an, in like a little side series on Tales. So, uh, and every Monday night, uh, 10.30 at supermanhomepage.com, you can listen to me and Steve Eunice on Radio KAL Live. Badass. So I think I speak on behalf of the listeners when I say all you need now is a YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much uh, again for joining in. You, you took what could have been a, a mediocre episode and you're, you really took it to the next level. So thank uh, you very much. I always love having you on the show. And... Um, as to next week, I'm going to be joined by Scott Rifen of Dinner for Geeks fame so that he and I can talk about House of M as I continue my Extinction Level Event miniseries, but uh, that's next week. So for right now, bye everybody. See you next time. We are out. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction 
that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Star Trek. Comic books. Mythology. Video games. Toys. Star Wars. Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by two true freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with, and be careful or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. It was okay. It was it was decent. I don't know. It was. I guess I was expecting us something else. And I don't. There's this pizza joint. Um. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's about like a mile or two away from here. Mm-hmm. And um, they. First off, I really don't understand this whole thing about New York pizza. What do they use? Just a fucking special type of dough that you can't get anywhere else, or, or... a lot of bullshit posturing mostly. So. Yeah. Well, you see, growing up in PA, we had a lot of people, you know, we were two hours from New York, so a lot of people from that area would come and open mom-and-pop pizza places. So it was a, it was quite the adjustment when I moved to Georgia, and it was just the big chains. Um, and at that point, it was the 90s, so Domino's was heading into its dark time. And uh, I never really cared for Domino's. Uh I, I thought their crust was kind of bland and boring, uh, and then they changed it, and then they changed it again, and I haven't had it since they changed it again. So uh, I know you're a fan of their Brooklyn style pizza. So it's okay. Um, honestly, to, to me, Domino's is all about the thin crust, and that's really what I go to them for now. But you gotta understand, I mean, dude, my family, we we were patronizing Domino's back in like the avoid the noise days. <laughs> Avoid the noise! Oh my God! Yeah, 
And so that was uh, that was sort of like the brand. I mean, to me, to say you were ordering pizza, that was like synonymous with Domino's. I did not when I was a kid, I did not see a difference between the two. And so to find out like that friends of mine, they were all about like Pizza Hut or something like that. Oh, boy. You know, I mean, I always felt like if pizza is or uh, yeah, I mean, I guess if pizza is heroin. Pizza Hut has got to be methadone. You know, it's <laughs> good enough to get you by, but that's about it, you know, and uh, well, and, you know, and, and that was something else. You know, sometimes you can find little obscure sort of behind the scenes administrivia and stuff that I don't I, sometimes I'll be honest with you. It really does sort of detract from the final product. I mean, there have been enough people giving enough negative interviews about George Lucas that I've really kind of had no choice but to redefine the way that I look at him over the years. But mm -hmm. now and then, you get these little golden nuggets, right, where I, it may have actually been on the homepage, I forget, but somebody did a, a, a printed uh, interview with John Hames Newton, of all people, right? Well, I, I just well, I like Newton as Superboy, so, you know, I'll, I'll take a look at that. And the subject of what's-her-name, who played Lana... Stacy Hadiak, yeah. Oh, there you go. Here's a $5 last name for you. Uh, that subject of her came up, and he's like, yeah, you know, we were pretty much, shall we say, together for from, for pretty much like the entire, the, the entirety of the show, right? Mm-hmm. And, and when I started thinking back to those first season episodes, you know, there was a lot of ambiguity to, to, to their scenes that I don't think was intentional. Mm -hmm. Like on like on paper, they were very platonic friends. That's it. But there was something about their chemistry with one another. You didn't really believe they were just friends, and that's why. And so it made so much sense. I mean, they really were fucking off uh, off screen. So yeah, sure, of course they're gonna be uh, cozy with one uh, with one another. I mean, what do you expect? They're gonna have that familiarity, that that kind of. And and it actually, I think, you know, he gets he gets a lot of crap for that first season, and I, I'm not going to defend every episode saying it's it's gold because that series definitely did get better as it went along. I would have liked to have seen him continue with it and get better with the series. Uh, but you know, there's there's the legend that he got into a drink, drunk driving incident. And he says it was all just a contract thing and a money thing, and, and, and I'm just like, who gives a shit? It just happened. So, right. I don't get hung up on that. <laughs> well, and I'll be honest with you, when I was when they started doing TV spots for the second season, and they had some other asshole, you know, playing Superboy, and that was kind of my attitude about it. It's like, who's this asshole? And um, I kind of, because I one of the things that I sort of liked, and keep in mind, I mean, I was a kid, so it's not like I had the most discerning taste in the world or anything. But I kind of like the idea of continuity uh, from one season to another, where you have this sort of stability of your cast. And that show did not have a whole lot of stability until, like, what, season four? Season three, when they moved to the X-Files, uh, the proto-X-Files, I guess you could say, uh, and they had the, the Perry White-type guy running the thing, and they had the... Uh, the other dude that was like the full agent and they were just interns. That's when the, the cast season three is when the cast solidified and they, they got rid of Andy McAllister from yeah. weird science. Yeah. Uh, and so, but 
you know, and it's funny because that's the season the series got dark. Mm-hmm. And it's not coincidental that that was the 1989 into the 1990 season. Yeah. Or, or the 90 into 91. It's just like, yeah, Batman's really popular, so let's do that. <laughs> well, I the way I looked at it, even at the time, what I said was, well, it's kind of dim. But dark? Eh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So Dark in comparison to being bright, sunny beaches. And <laughs> it went to a lot more backlot shooting. Yes, that is true. As opposed to finding a back alley road with a Publix in the background. Uh, so Superboy can skate while he does the shirt rip. Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, there is that. But, you know, I got to tell you, there was a point when the, um, the, when the first season first came out on DVD. I had two major realizations. Number one, the first season of that show is really friggin' cheesy. Mm-hmm. Number two, the best parts of it. Um, I think one, there was an episode like that, that kind of made me change my mind about all of this. Uh, it was, I think it was called The Russian Scientist, but basically TJ's girlfriend is a commie spy or so, oh, yeah. uh, or some such. And uh, actually, no, she's not. She's being framed, and it's all one big giant misunderstanding. But the part about it that, that I liked, it wasn't so much like the action sequences and whatnot, because those were hit and miss on Superboy, especially to begin with. But you would have t- uh, Clark, TJ, and Lana just kind of sitting around. And as much as they could in the context of a half-hour adventure TV show from the 80s intended for children, having these kind of interesting ethical conflicts with one another, these ethical discussions. Well, TJ, I think we need to explore all the possibilities, including the ones that you may not like very much. And TJ, on the other hand, he's uh, he's prejudiced as all hell in this case, but can you really blame the guy? I mean, he's getting laid. We've never seen him get laid before, so this is kind of an interesting thing. And, you know, I thought that was – I don't know if you can have like an entire TV show, you know, revolving around stuff like that. But I was eating that stuff up with a spoon because I had totally forgotten about stuff like that when I was watching those episodes first run because all I wanted to see was Superboy fly around and beat the shit out of bad guys, you know? You know, it, it, I, I kind of had to reevaluate the first season when it came out, too. And I was a little I remember my reaction to the first season coming out was, yeah, oh, crap. Yeah, <laughs> we're not we're not going to get any of the rest of them on DVD. But I was excited to get that because it had behind the scenes stuff on it. And, you know, a couple episodes had commentaries. But there was an episode with Leaf Garrett. Yes. Uh, and. There's this moment where he's got Lana and he's torturing her and Superboy busts in and he's got him and he's got his fist cocked back. And Superboy looks like he is going to annihilate this man. Yes, he does. And and he has this and it's just like this is the point where which I think the later seasons kind of lost is that we're supposed to see him learning his craft. Mm -hmm. Essentially, that's the point of Superboy. You know, and, and I don't need to tell you, by the way, the last two Smallville episodes were really good. Oh, thank you. Um, I was really looking forward to the one where you talked about him kicking the crap out of the frat boys. Because uh, that's <laughs> one of my favorite from season two. Because it's, it's just the point where Clark's like, no, this is not going to stand. <laughs> well, yeah, but it, it was a huge tactical mistake. <laughs> yes, it was. I'm not saying it was a good thing. I'm just saying it was very cathartic to watch him toss those guys around. Um, but... Um, but, you know, and I think the later seasons, he was Superman, essentially, at that point. You know, he was facing people for the first time, but there was no... I, I never got the sense that he was learning what he was doing, where in that first season, he was. He was trying to figure out 
right and wrong and what to do with his powers and all that. And he always had Ma and Pa to go, to fall back on. And I always liked the episodes that featured the Kents. Uh, but, you know, that's because I came into the comics like a year or two before the series came on. So it was like, it was all like, like the perfect storm of Superman for me, really, at the, you know, as a 12 year old. But I just I just think that in later seasons, as good as they were and as comic booky as they got, because, uh, you know, when were we ever going to get a live action Bizarro? I mean, for Bizarro, not looking too bad either. It's, you know, a syndicated TV show budget, but, uh, you know, and the flying scenes always looked good because uh, by that point they had it down. If those people were screwing up, if the Salkites were screwing up flying scenes by Superboy, they needed to give the rights back then and there. Because you've had th four movies to get this shit right, so, you know, that's why I never really marvel at the flying sequences, because I just take it for granted that they're going to be good. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus, Punches Reality, is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.